0: Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Belisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Penn State Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Taylor, and on this episode, I spoke with Rob King, the Senior Vice President of ESPN's Original Content about the state of ESPN and his role there. Welcome to this episode of Penn State Conversations Podcast. Today, we are joined by Rob King, the Senior Vice President of Original Content at ESPN. How you doing, sir?
0: I'm doing very well, except I gotta say, when I walk around campus and I look at all these beautiful young people, And then when I walk past a mirror, (laughs) it's a bad shock,
1: man. You said black don't crack yesterday. I know, but it
0: still can be weathered and, you know, it doesn't hold up the way I would like to think it holds up when I, you know, I look around, but very glad to be back on
1: campus. And how was your stay? I know you came in yesterday straight from uh, Bristol and then did a speech. So did you get some sleep at all?
0: I did, but, you know, um, it got to be midnight faster than I thought you know Um, yeah I left I left campus ESPN campus around 115 and got here right at 7 and kind of poured in through the uh the evening but had a nice rest at the Nittany Inn Nittany line Inn. um so I think I'm ready to go
1: (laughs) and uh has what has you seen that has changed since you know since you were walking on campus
0: we were talking about that last night. I mean, there was no bus stop behind the Petit Library like there is now, and there's major traffic going through all parts of the campus. Um, you know, it's funny to walk through Carnegie Hall and not think of the Collegian being downstairs. I know it's downtown, and I've been down to those offices. Um, but so much of campus is just familiar, you know? Um just walking down College Avenue just seemed very, very familiar. I understand because I didn't come up through 322 that if you go out that corridor and you see all the stuff that's been built up, dramatic change to State College. Uh, And I remember seeing part of it last time I was here. But, you know, this is also we're talking to each other at the end of March. Um, I recognize the looks on the faces of people walking around campus where... (laughs) You know, we really got about another six weeks of yeah. grind, and people are hustling from class to class, and all that seems very familiar.
1: <laughs> and uh, so to start your career, you were an editorial cartoonist. Um, first question, how did you get into that? How did you decide, this is what I want to do?
0: I started reading at a really early age, mostly because my mother was a, an English teacher who suddenly had three kids under the age of five and was bored, so she turned me into a lab experiment. And at that time, I was reading so much and so fast that it was getting expensive for my parents to put books in front of me. So they started buying comic books, which at the time were very inexpensive. And that's how I got interested in drawing. Um, but it wasn't until, I think I might have been in, in fifth or sixth grade, we, we got a copy of the, encycl- the World Book Encyclopedia brought to our house. And as part of owning the World Book Encyclopedia, you would get these annual updates every year. And one of them contained an article on a guy named Bill Malden, who was a famous editorial cartoonist. And I didn't realize that was something you could do for as a living. My parents, I was born in DC. Both my parents were involved in government politics. I was very interested in that. So I thought I could marry those two. Um, and that's really what led me down the path of thinking it was something I wanted to do for a living. Um, I didn't really pursue it in my undergrad years. Uh, it wasn't until I graduated from Wesleyan that I got serious about trying to become good at it uh, while I was sorting mail at the Washington Post. I, I was very lucky to meet the kinds of people who would support the work that I was trying to do and learn from Herb Block, who was a great editorial cartoonist at the paper who befriended me and gave me advice. And I literally got into Penn State's graduate program at the School of Communications based on cartoons I did while I was sorting mail at the Washington Post pitching myself as, you know, somebody who wanted to do this for a living. Um, and yeah, you know, I, my first couple of jobs I lucked into jobs that allowed me to do editorial cartooning. I had a comic strip for about six years, uh, and I was serious about pursuing it. But along the lines, in order to really like pay the bills, I also had to learn other things like graphic design, um, typography, uh, you know, photography. And I moved f- really from just purely cartooning very quickly into jobs that had to do with visual journalism and newspapers. So you know I was able to do it for a while, yeah, but eventually I had to get a real job.
1: And uh, speaking of that graphic design, is that that time you go to uh, Illinois, uh, Danville? What was it one year, two weeks, and three days? I Correct. Think? <laughs>
0: one year, two weeks, and three days. Yeah, I t- my first job right out of grad school, I said yes to somebody who called me and said the words editorial cartooning. Um, I didn't really pay attention to the rest of what he said, which also involved general assignment reporting and graphic design. Um, but I was happy because I, I got, to, got into a newspaper r- that allowed me to do this stuff. Uh, I had the opportunity to write right away. I had to learn how to use a Macintosh computer to create maps and charts. And I pretty much had to read manuals or read... Um, newsletters that were published by other newspapers in the Gannett company that would publish a note on how to do X, Y, and Z. And I mean, these are the, these are the dark ages. I had a very small boxy Macintosh plus I was using programs like Mac paint and Mac draw. I mean, you know, you talk about, this was like rubbing two sticks together to make fire, you know? Um, But I feel blessed to have been there right at the advent of these devices that now everybody takes for granted. In fact, everybody uses a communication device coming into newsrooms. I really did walk into newspapers right around the time of the advent of the personal computer. And um, it pretty much informed everything I did as I moved into graphic design and then digital photography. And managing people who are visual, visual journalists. Um, I, I, I just rolled in at a really fortunate time and learned from brilliant people.
1: And then after that, a couple of years later, you're at the Inquirer, right? Um, how does that, from reporting on the newspaper to actually being an editor on a newspaper, how, what was like that, that, that mindset, that change of mindset?
0: So I went from Danville, Illinois, to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, to Louisville, Kentucky, to Philadelphia. Uh, in a span of roughly about 14 years. And the general assignment reporting essentially informed storytelling skills that are necessary whether you are taking photographs or drawing a map or writing a story. Um, It's about information sharing. It's about research. It's about really thinking about the audience and making sure things are clear and that it empowers the audience to know something once they've spent time with what you've produced. Um, You know, and by the time I got to the Philadelphia Inquirer, I was really thinking about visual design as storytelling. Like, you know, um, it's not just a matter of having a really big photo, although a really big photo tells a lot of, gives a lot of information. And it's not just a matter of a cute headline, although the kind of smart headlines that can draw people into a big story are really intricately created. Um, So the cool thing about every one of the stops where I worked um, was that everywhere there were really brilliant people who were great storytellers, who asked a lot of questions about whether or not what we were doing made sense to audiences, challenged everybody to do their very best, uh, believed in the virtues of... Planning, so that you could execute at a high level, um, and then yeah, in the end, asking ourselves, well, did we tell a story that's going to move people, inform people, empower people? Um, this Is a story that is fairly presented? Um, you know, whether that's a written story or whether it's a photo essay. Uh, yeah, so all those all those policies, all those ideas, informed everything that I did irrespective of whether it was writing a story or editing a photo photo montage.
1: And then towards the end of your time at the Enquirer, you adopt your first child, is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, uh, How? what about being a parent did you learn that you kind of maybe applied to your job or how that changed your mindset about just everything?
0: Yeah, I mean when Eli showed up everything changed because first of all my parents got a lot smarter. You know, I was really listening to things my parents said to me and my brother and sister that uh, I might not have paid the same level of attention to prior. Uh, and the world was much bigger. Um, it just seemed like Eli and now his sisters, uh, deserve to see the world as a big open opportunity. So that conferred a lot more responsibility on my wife and me to make sure we made that possible for them. Um, the best, one of the best gifts my parents gave my brother and sister and me was this, belief that you could make big decisions about your career and expect good things to happen uh, even if it meant changing what you're doing I wanted Eli to believe that that was the case so um, ESPN which had entered into my life with a couple of opportunities um, showed up at the perfect time I didn't know anything about TV uh, but I liked and trusted the people I met there who's told me that it was something that I could learn and that there was a great opportunity to Join their community of leaders and making a difference. Um, and I wanted Eli to know that his dad and mom could make decisions about where we're going to live and what we're going to do for a living, um, with the expectation of good outcomes, and that he would always be free to make those kind of moves. And again, his sister and Amani and Amanda, I b- I hope that they recognize that. Um, it's, and then you know, it's it has been. It's been a magnificent change for us. Wonderful, you know. um, ESPN as it happens is part of the Disney company, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Means that I'm connected to, partners with, family with, people at Pixar, at Marvel, and you know, um, Disney proper. And now that we've, the company's had this great acquisition Partners with folks at National Geographic, so you can actually sit across the table from, with folks from other parts of the company and have really big ideas about new ways to tell stories. And oh, by the way, you know, take the kids to Disney or you know, go to a Marvel premiere of Captain Marvel with my son, and you know, have them act, have my kids actually see that this world of creativity is something that's accessible. Um, it's an amazing experience.
1: And what was those first days at ESPN like?
0: <laughs> well, I didn't really know what the hell anybody was talking about. I mean, I really didn't know anything about television. And I also uh, was richly w- rewarded by the community, the family community there at ESPN that refused to permit me to have moments of solitary awkwardness. They, they descended on me. Scott Van Pelt almost like the first day walked up to me because I, I used to dress up for work at the Enquirer. And people don't really dress up unless they're going to be on camera. So I was walking around in a suit and Scott Van Pelt walked up to me first or second day and said, that's a nice, nice suit. You have a job interview? <laughs> um, you know, uh, at the time, John Cruck was a baseball analyst. He would just walk in my office and stand in the door and stare at me, you know, like they weren't going to allow me to be some snooty, you know, new boss. And, you know, it was I mean, it was me- immediately there was an embrace there. But I think the other thing that was, um, I always tell people about is like, you get to ESPN, and it's like Shangri-La, right? It's sports, and everybody's talking about sports. And if you love sports, it's a great environment. And so everybody seemed happy. But one day I was walking down a hallway, and I saw a couple of people huddled together, and it looked like they were not happy. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Let me just walk past them and eavesdrop to see what it looks like at ESPN when people are dissatisfied by something. So I wander by and I hear one guy go, oh man, you must be really, really, really pissed off. And the other guy was like, I know, man, I'm just disgusted, I'm just disgusted. I'm like, "Huh, this is interesting. And the first guy goes, well, you know, you probably shouldn't have drafted him in the first round. Because they were talking about fantasy. And I was like, what is this place, man? What is this place? So. That was that was an amazing um, sort of experience. But then the other thing was just, you know, there's terminology in television that I just had never been exposed to in newspapers. And yet here I am, I'm supposed to be one of the people responsible for Outside the Lines, which is our journalism show. I had a producer call me and say, "Yeah, we're looking at the opening of the show, and just wanted your opinion. Should we do that as vosat, or do you think that should be vosat vo?" And I do what I always do, I did then what I always do when confronted with a situation where I really don't know uh, what I'm talking about. I first said, well, tell me more about that. <laughs> you know. And secondly, when I didn't really understand what he was saying, I said, you know, man, I trust your judgment. Mm-hmm. You, know, you decide and you tell me. And then I had to figure out what the heck he was talking about. Now that's a voiceover, sound on tape, voiceover. Yeah. I did not know what those things were. And, like, you know, you can't, just, you can't just go on to Google and just Google VO, you know? Yeah. Um, so I had to get out of my comfort zone and, and talk to my colleagues and say, listen, there's something I don't know, you know? And trust that there were going to be enough instances where there were things that I did know about where there would be a balance, where I would be helping them, you know? And you learn very quickly at ESPN and particularly in terms of doing. Television or anything online or magazine production or what have you—that you're only as good as the team, and it's not really about an individual sport at all. And so, the the spirit of collegiality and partnership at ESPN uh, is singular, and that's how so many things get done by such an amazing company.
1: And then after you get that big promotion where they may name you senior vice president, of, you know operate, of the original content and all the ESPN digital media and things of that nature. When did you kind of know, like, oh, this job is even bigger than the producer job that I was just doing?
0: Well, I knew it right away. I mean, you know, when they first talked to me about being editor-in-chief of ESPN.com, I knew that was a big job, but I, I can't say I really realized how important it was for our digital media properties to grow and to lead the way. Um, and it's something that I discovered by virtue of my partnership with a guy who ever saw a product, a guy named John Zare, uh, the late John Zare, my boss, John Kosner, and our boss, John Skipper, where it just became really clear that audiences were changing very rapidly, and that in order for ESPN to position itself to be what it has always been for sports fans, it had to find a way to be in a leadership position in the digital and mobile spaces as well as being fantastic as a linear viewing experience. Uh, John Kozner took me to a lunch with an executive from another company and John excused himself and the executive said to me at this lunch, how long have you been a product guy? And I said, well, actually I'm a content guy. I'm not really sure I'm a product guy. And he says, no, you're a product guy. You need to accept that. And the truth of the matter is we are all both product and content people now irrespective of what platform we're working on because the platforms themselves are inventing themselves as we go along you know snapchat will have a have a change somewhere down the line and everybody will respond and algorithms are changing in the social spaces that force us to respond in terms of how we create post content and audiences are spending time with subscription services or on-demand experiences in their mobile devices and you know, that is the highest calling. That's why you see media companies merging and launching new products. The highest calling is to understand how to keep your storytelling and your brand and your business front and center with audiences. And so uh, it didn't take very long before uh, I came to understand that what seemed like a cool job is actually really important um, and a really important um, part of, a number of people operating at a number of levels across a number of channels, whether they're sales or distribution or what have you, all working together to try to make sure that in the end, sports fans feel as though they are known and served by ESPN unlike any other place.
1: And what would you say like the most challenging part of of your job is?
0: I think trying to be uh, out front because the, the pace of change is so dramatic Um, last night I was talking a lot about my kids and how they consume media. They're doing things that uh, I would not have dreamed of doing when I was their age. So their expectation level already starts way higher than mine. And, you know, I watch my son and his friends go from Fortnite to Anthem, like overnight, which suggests that even the most powerful brands and environments can be fleeting. Um, And I think that the other really challenging and important thing is helping folks who work with me and particularly work for me understand that they are empowered to lead and make change and make a difference rather than feeling like we're all kind of passively responding to changes in the marketplace. Um, But the pace of change is the biggest challenge.
1: Yeah, and then it's like age of disruption. You know, you have so many different platforms, different uh, com- media companies coming out. How does ESPN kind of stay at the forefront of that change and making sure they are always ahead of the curve?
0: I mean, we're focused on fans. We are focused on fans and their expectations. Um, you know, and we spend a lot of energy watching what our fans are doing and what they're what they're buying and what you know how long they're watching and who their favorite teams are, and we're constantly iterating on our products and our programming to make sure we reflect our passion for serving sports fans. And we focus on ourselves. You know, we're aware of the competition, we're aware of people that are doing interesting and new things, um, but we are, we're more focused on how we get better.
1: So uh, in terms of competition, how often are you saying they're doing this, we need to respond, and how often are you saying that stay on our path, they are gonna do that. That's not what we do.
0: I think it's a little mixture of all these things, but you know, when we talk about competition, we're really talking about competition for time and attention, and competition for the attention of potential sports fans, particularly younger sports fans. So that's not necessarily another sports network or another media entity. Some, in some cases, it's Fortnite. In some cases, it's just activity on the social space in general. I mean these are all things that consume people's time away from what used to be traditional sports viewing time or score checking time or what have you. Um, so we really think a lot about all the ways in which potential sports fans, potential members of our audience are occupying their time. And that means that you know our digital products have to be great at being personalized experiences because we're competing against you know, that 15 minutes where somebody might say, ooh, what should I buy on Amazon? Or, you know, ooh, what should I watch on Netflix? Um, so those are competitive... Those, that's really the kind of the competition that we're thinking about. We're very much focused on um, what we recognize is the, the change in way people choose to be sports fans. You know, um, this is an on-demand space, so it's not necessarily we can't necessarily guarantee that everybody's gonna have the same live viewing experience all the time. Live games do terrifically well in drawing large audiences. But even so, you know, there are a number of people who on an NFL Sunday would sooner watch Red Zone than watch a three hour game. And that's very interesting to us because we have to make sure that as fans change, we are still their preferred destination. Um, And that may mean that we have to serve up highlights in real time on our digital platforms as opposed to expecting them to watch a three or four hour game. That may mean we have to spend a lot of energy sending alerts to let people know that there's a close final, a close game towards the end of a game, or a game has just gone final, or this news is breaking and you may not be anywhere near a television or a computer, but you deserve to know that this news is breaking. Uh, it drives us to create newsletters that people start their day with so that they of have a sense of how ESPN could mean something due to the course of the day. We just have to be more active um, in how we connect with our audiences.
1: Um, you talked about eSports. You've brought up Fortnite a couple of times, and that's where uh, your children are. They're on the eSports. And I grew up in a generation where my dad was telling me to get off the game and yeah. go outside. And now not only are kids on the game, but they're watching People play games not just playing but they're watching people play games how do you guys adapt to that in this growing world of esports
0: well first of all we do kick our kids outside and make (laughs) them play sports um and we're pretty aggressive in trying to make sure we limit screen time in a way that's appropriate even though we know that it's really an important part of their lives to be engaged in these gaming and slash social spaces by the way that's where they spend time with their friends so we recognize that's important, um, and we think as a company, it's important to recognize that these are rich environments where where uh, fans are spending a lot of their time, and, and we want to be there in a way that's authentic to uh, the game environments, but also makes it clear that being with ESPN can enrich your experience as a as a fan. Um, but I think your 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 bigger question really is. You know, in what ways do we view this as a new way to be a, a sports fan? And in what way does that drive us to do things that we might not have done otherwise? Um, and, yeah, I mean, look, we, we are fascinated by young people and their ability to spend oceans of time with content. And we feel like, you know, we can help them have... Uh, a better experience because we've got great storytellers and we have great content and you know we wanna be there with them. Um, it has led us to be very active in the fantasy space and very active in the combat sports space where we know that there's tons of fans who haven't spent a ton of time with ESPN but who love the UFC or love boxing and we think we can provide experiences for them that are Really rich, and um, so you know, our business is—we're we're a flexible company. You know, we're a company that moves quickly. We were very early on in the mobile space when it wasn't really clear to us how people were going to spend time on their phones. We just knew that day was coming. Um, so we're—you know—we look at, watch how audiences are behaving, and we ask ourselves: Can we be authentic in the social space? Can we be authentic in the esports space? Can we be authentic in the combat sports space, how do we do it with which talent, um, with which league partners, um, on which platforms. Um, but that, that's that been the nature of this company long before I ever got there, to be tirelessly focused on being great and available and unique for fans. Um, I view this kind of as just a, con- a continuation of the company's ongoing mission.
1: And you brought up combat sports, ESPN just signed that huge deal with the UFC my question is because I've been a UFC fan a little bit a little bit longer than before it broke into the mainstream. Why now? Why why do you think the UFC is marketable to the mainstream audiences now as opposed to a couple years a couple years ago?
0: I think we've both just kind of evolved in a direction where we see the opportunity that each each other represents. I mean, certainly we get we start with pretty good scale. But we have terrific technology. Um, we got a number of platforms that are complementary to the way in which they reach their audiences. Um, you know, I, I think it's, look, we've had, internally, we've had UFC and boxing fans for years, and we've covered their athletes for years. Um, so this was, I think this just represented a time where, particularly from, you know, their contract got to a certain point where it was ending, and there was an opportunity for us. We just, we just realized we were in a place where we we're really like-minded. Um, it's been very exciting for our company, um, very excited for storytellers we have, very exciting for their league and their athletes. Uh, just right timing.
1: And how does that contrast? I know you guys also cover boxing, and it seemed like those two sports were almost pitted against each other because they're both combat sports. How does that kind of how do you kind of balance making sure you keep the coverage of boxing and
0: and MMA? Well, you know our deal with the with the UFC is pretty exhaustive. In the realm of boxing, we we have a deal with Top Rank that it gives us a very specific way of getting into the sport. Again, though, we've has a long long history of Friday night fights and boxing as being part of our tradition. So this this Top Rank um, relationship is just you know. A really substantial way for us to be in the sport. Don't know that we see it as competition. I think we've done a pretty nice job from a programming perspective, a scheduling perspective, to create Saturday nights and Friday nights that are really interesting to sports fans and you know offer offer a lot of doorways. And there'll be some nights where there'll be a college football in one channel and, you know, a boxing match on another, and later on, you know, UFC matches. I think that's all. Really fascinating and fun for an array of sports fans.
1: And you—you uh, you brought up the competition, the space, the subscription space. Uh, the zone is coming around. Athletic kind of is big yeah. now. I mean, you guys just launched ESPN Plus. Um, How—how is that kind of changing the way that you engage fans, and then kind of getting different content to your subscription fans and the fans that just kind of watch you
0: live. We're just excited about the first year of being able to create um, a new experience with exclusive content that, in some cases serves underserved sports fans, in other cases, represents new opportunities to go deeper with athletes, deeper with our films, um, you know, gives us the opportunity, a new, new place to bring new sports into the ESPN umbrella, new conferences in the ES, under the ESPN umbrella. Uh, you know, super serve soccer fans, and so I think really we viewed this as an opportunity to build some form of optionality should the cable model ever change, but we love the cable model. You know, we're keeping our channels as robust as possible, and, and we believe that people who have cable subscriptions are are, are are rewarded by having a relationship with ESPN. So ESPN Plus for us has turned into this great opportunity to just be imaginative and think broadly about what other kinds of content we can bring to sports fans. Um, and that's how we look at it. I know that there are the other there's other competition out there but you know, really our focus is on trying to create yet another opportunity for fans to engage with ESPN that gives them access to things that they haven't been able to see on our linear networks.
1: And with uh, I know you talked about the new Michael Jordan film that's coming out uh I think next year next year next year, and you talked about last night I thought it was really interesting. you talked about how do we make sure that our fans tune in for a partly you know a series that has parts as opposed to you know a Netflix drop where they drop the whole series yeah. then and now that you have the subscription base, do you kind of think about if you have the subscription, you can get the whole series and if you have the, and if you are on a, ca- a cable subscriber, you just get an episode at a time.
0: Well, the, the fact of the matter is, we do multiple episodes of a series on ESPN Plus at a time. When we started the More Than an Athlete series with LeBron James, I think we dropped the first three episodes. So we know that there's some opportunity to binge. We've been experimenting. I mean, there's no hard and fast rule there. I, what I was the point I was trying to make was. On linear television, um, you know, we want to make sure that, for example, in a four-part series about Jim Calhoun on E60, that we've done everything we can to make sure people watch the whole thing. And it's something of an experiment. We don't do it all the time. So um, we're just watching how people are tracking. And then we're trying to make sure that from an on-demand perspective, you can find it on our digital platform in a way that is also enriching. Um, and you know, in some cases we're we're experimenting. I mean, I I just binged The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. I was flying on vacation and I just powered through. That's a that's a really rewarding experience. But you know, um, it may not be the only experience people have. In the end, the only thing that really matters is that people can discover and enjoy the content. But we are experimenting with a number of forms to make sure that we're aware of what works best. And you talked about
1: LeBron, and I, you said something last night that I thought was very, very interesting. Zion Williamson will be the first rookie that might attract free agents. Yeah, I believe that. And he has 2.9 million followers right now as a freshman in college. Yep. That's a lot
0: of eyeballs.
1: Yep. How does ESPN cover him where he can have other eyeballs without ESPN, without a media corporation?
0: Well, I think that's one of the big ongoing conversations right now because the social space does allow and in some cases the digital space allows really prominent athletes to literally go direct to consumer themselves with their stories Um, and that's starting in an earlier and earlier age um, because the the Zion mixtapes were legendary when he was a sophomore and junior So we are learning about this in real time right now. But I dare say that we would cover Michael Jordan irrespective of Michael Jordan's social media space. I think the real magic is not just in the collection of highlights or access clips. The real magic happens in a game, live, and immediately thereafter. And we we have a fairly trusted position with our fans that we will be documenting these things live and then immediately thereafter. Um, I think we try to cover people fairly um, and with urgency in one of the few places that's on 24, 24 24/7, So the people we cover know that they have an opportunity, an additional opportunity to reach fans if they spend time with us. Um, And, you know, it is our job to document what is literally historic moments in sports. So I think what you're really asking is how do we make sure that we have the most authentic stuff when they're they themselves are publishers that's an ongoing and an evolving thing I mean LeBron James did more than an athlete with us he's doing the barbershop with somebody else he's doing another show with somebody else that's 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 happening in real time now man that's that's a new thing that was not the case you know a half generation prior ago and And the next great player will be even more sophisticated and connected to audiences through some form of media than Zion is now. Um, So I actually think it's one of the more fascinating things to watch, you know. Um, But I also think that if you have your hearts and minds open, there are stories to tell about athletes everywhere. The most famous and the people that are kind of under the radar. And our job is to try to do both really, really well.
1: And you, we're talking about LeBron's Zion. So basketball, LeBron's not going to be in the playoffs. You, I know you've talked about being in the social media threads, and you, I'm sure you've seen some criticism about sports and coverage of LeBron, always covering LeBron James. What does that mean that he's not he's not going to be on the biggest stage for basketball?
0: Well, once the playoffs start, we're going to focus on the teams that are in the playoffs. You know, he will always make news. And we hear the same thing about Tiger Woods, we hear the same thing about the Dallas Cowboys, we hear the same thing about the New York Yankees. There's plenty, of, you know, Alabama football, there are plenty of people who are ready to complain about ESPN or Sports Center's quote unquote narrow focus on the biggest topics. Let me tell you something right now. If LeBron James and Tiger Woods decided to go visit the Dallas Cowboys with Nick Saban, everybody would watch. Everybody's watching that. So at some point, the criticism, let the criticism be what it's gonna be. You know, I was at the tour championship when Tiger Woods broke through and won. There was nothing more exciting in golf that year, period. I don't care who won the majors, I don't care what. Tiger Woods walking down that that fairway with all those people around him, you've never seen anything like that. And you better hope that people understand that there are a few transformative teams and athletes, that irrespective of how many people might complain, people care about. And so that's our job, right? That is
1: That also is our job. You brought up Scott's Van Peltman. that's kind of the first sports center or first show that was kind of talking about gambling and like a, another way, and now it's becoming legal. How do you make sure that sports is still covered, like the game of sports is still covered and not the game within the game takes over all of the coverage? because. So many people do gamble on sports that you do want to kind of make sure that you still are covering.
0: Yeah, well, The Daily Wager, the new show we launched a couple of weeks ago, is very very, very revert in what it's about. And then I think we try to be smart and appropriate on other shows. And Scott's show is ingenious in terms of how he has framed gambling as something that happens among sports fans that uh, informs the way in which they look at games and in some ways is hysterical and pathetic because, you know, that that can mean that that uh, you're gonna show up on bad beats, right? Um, and that was something that he created when he uh, was doing his radio show uh, with Ryan Russilla before we launched the TV show. And I think it appropriately resonates with fans. Um, by the way, our, our excellent radio shows have always been more interested in some of these gambling lines and gambling conversations. <laughs> So we have a history of being able to figure out the right way to thread the needle through shows. Um, I think we're trying to make sure that we do the right thing in terms of on-screen graphics uh, and be aware that you know these games walk in with lines that suggest how Las Vegas and other places are thinking about outcomes. Um, but I also think that we're trying to be really smart about who's doing the talking about this so that you're it's not we're not forcing this upon, anchor sports anchors or writers who are not couched in gambling as a piece of sports coverage but through analysts who actually know what they're talking about so we're treating it responsibly i think you know we recognize that it's a part of the of some sports fans experience like i mean you know the number of people who fill out a tournament bracket is astounding so you have to lean into that so you know um we got great minds great Great smart minds thinking about this every day. And I think I think even as gambling becomes much more widespread throughout the country, a greater percentage of people actually could potentially legally place a bet. We'll see the evolution of our coverage the same way.
1: How important is it for a personality to, to be developed off off camera? You know, there's Bomani has the right time podcast, Mina Kimes has her podcast. How how important is it for these these Analysts to have another platform outside of just television
0: a lot of folks would like to have additional platforms We just want to make sure that what they do is meaningful rather than just occupying space So the folks who oversee our podcast business are thinking very critically about that to make sure that we're laying out the best possible lineup I mean, Dan Levitard and team have identified some really talented people to do additional work in this space and I think it's working for fans Um, but it's not just a matter of okay you know, your next deal will just add a podcast to your deal. That's not thats not a practice we're thinking about. We're trying to make sure that every time we do this, it delivers an experience for fans that is meaningful. Now, your bigger question about developing personality is one that is much more art than science. Um, but Monty's right time experience, that, that existed before he came full bore back into ESPN. He was working hard to make that a great show. Um, And as I said, Scott's TV show is informed by what he did in the audio space. So some of this is kind of a virtuous cycle. Um, I thought where you were going was, in addition to podcasting, what our talent does in the social space or what our talent does, you know, interacting with fans. All of that adds up. But when we talked about personality last night, it came up specifically that Stu Scott had a very special space in the hearts of some fans. And he did. He, He He was unique. You can't make that. You just can't artificially create that. That happens through a lot of hard work and a lot of earnest work and being present and having a unique voice and allowing people to see who you are. And that's a magical thing. And I do think, as I was saying last night, we got some people that have that. You know, Scott has it. I believe Kirk Herbstreet has it. I think Reese Davis has it. I think Stephen A has it. I think Michael uh, Matthew Berry has it. I think Maria Taylor and Laura Rutledge have it. I think there are a whole host of people. Sage Steele. There are a whole host of people who've kind of developed this over time. It happens over time, and you can't force it.
1: And then, um, I asked earlier what's the most challenging part of your job, so I'm going to conversely ask what's the most satisfying part of your job.
0: Without question, watching people create stuff that I didn't see coming—that's wonderful and surprising to people, and seeing people that. Aren't just in my group, but are in other groups. Connect with folks in my storytelling group to create create experiences that you know on on the on the app or on air. You just might not otherwise have seen coming. Um, You know, I always point to things like um, we had we wanted to tell the story of LeBron James's move to Los Angeles in a way that was unique, and we had our Visual designers get with some of our reporters and do a map of Hollywood and all the places where LeBron has businesses and where the stadium is. And, you know, it's just sort of a graphic map you could play with and learn at the same time. Like nobody told them to do that. That's brainstorming and that's idea sharing. And all of a sudden there's this experience that is just wonderful, you know? Um, I sit in story planning meetings and the pitches that people come up with are just ingenious. And it just comes from setting an open table for creativity. By orders of measure, my favorite thing is seeing how creative our people are, how tirelessly creative they are, how willing they are to sit with each other and make their ideas get better. Um, And then just to kind of open up the the website or open up the app or open up the magazine or turn on E60 and be surprised. You know, E60's got this new feature called, um, we've been doing it a while, it's called Tell Me a Story that's animated. And they started this season with an animated feature where Chris Tucker of, uh, 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 what is that movie? Rush, Rush Hour. Chris Tucker of Rush Hour, who lives in Hollywood, tells the story of going to his LA church and sitting in the second row to see his pastor. And all of a sudden, here comes LeBron James, who's just moved to LA, with Magic Johnson. They sit in the row in front of him and block his view. You know, nobody's asking for that story, but it's endlessly fascinating. Chris Tucker's voice is great. The animation that these incredibly smart guys on our team did, really fun. And again, nobody ordered that up. That's something that our people wanted to make. I love our creativity.
1: And then if you had any advice to recent graduates, potential potential graduates, people that are just entering college, what would that be?
0: It's going to sound so trite and easy to say as somebody who's almost 57 years old, but like you're just getting out of school. First of all, yeah, it's going to be awkward and challenging. and You don't have all the answers, but be the age you are now, right? Like I started off by saying, walking past a mirror right now is jarring. Enjoy being 21, 22, 23, 24. Enjoy it, right? Last I checked, you only get to do it one time. So you know, that's the first thing. The second thing is the next 10 years are about kind of discovering your way and some of it's going to be harder and some of it's going to be challenging and spooky and what have you, but like, understand that this next 10 years is a necessary passage of your life that will, that will give you an opportunity to do a lot of changing, changing your mind about your career, changing your mind about you know, how you want to live your life, where you want to live, who you want to spend it with. So it's supposed to be a time of, of great change You're graduating from college right now. The truth of the matter is you just spent the previous 17 years going 17 and 0. You went every year through school dominating, right? You, you, Everything was, you graduated the next, you won for 17 years. Now you're gonna go through 10 years of like not winning every year, okay? So that's okay. That's the job. That's the job of your life, to get through those 10 years and have experiences and and change a great deal. And finally, I've said this everywhere I've gone so far. If you want to write, if you want to produce music, if you want to make films, if you want to do photography, if you want to design, there is nothing stopping you. You can do it in this open digital space and share it in this open digital and social space and get feedback in this space in ways I never could. And now's the time to make stuff, make bad stuff, get feedback, get better, irrespective of what you're asked to do in class, irrespective of what you're asked to do in your job. The world is open for creators, and I see it all over. I, I see 12-year-old writers. I see 15-year-old musicians. I see 17-year-old videographers putting their stuff out in the public space, getting feedback, starting over, trying to get better. I, I can't. Ur- I, if you are a creative, I'm telling you, create. Just do it.
1: And then is there anything that you wanted to plug or say anything about?
0: Uh, no man. I, no sir i'm i'm uh, I'm not here to plug anything. I'm here at the service of Penn State and it's wonderful student and community, so I'm just happy to spend this time with you. All right, thank you Rob. My pleasure. all right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit bellisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.